Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. We are recording on Saturday, July 16th. Victor Davis Hanson, the namesake and star, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor is a farmer, classicist, military historian, and author of many bestsellers, an essayist. He just writes a lot, and you'll find what he writes at victorhanson.com, about which we will talk later. Victor, there's been a lot happening the last few days, and I think right after these important messages, we are going to discuss fist bump diplomacy. So let's do that. Let's get to these important messages. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back with the 
Victor Davis Hansen Show. So, Victor, our esteemed great president, remember, he was put on the ticket with Obama because of his foreign policy chops. <laughs> so now he's bringing those chops and maybe some soft serve ice cream to um, a meeting with the leaders of Saudi Arabia. Before the meeting, there was this all oh, this controversy. Was he going to shake hands with the leader? He fist bumped. This set off any number of critiques. But Victor, I think that's worthy of your commentary. So the overall way Joe Biden conducts foreign policy, I think our listeners would like to hear that. Also, Victor, today we hear that the Saudis are saying, Abavangul, that's Italian, but as to producing more oil. So here he is, hat in hand over there, asking for more oil, the oil, of course, that could be produced in the United States, and the Saudis are flipping him the bird. So, Victor, your thoughts on that? And then after that, we'll sideways crab walk into the Iran deal, which is also part and parcel of American relations with Saudi Arabia. Well, I guess the best way to summarize what we've seen so far Biden in Saudi Arabia, it's a blank, blank, utter disaster. Biden lied about, remember he said he'd been, I think, 41 times to Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. That was a lie. He'd only been there a little over 20. More than he's been to the border, but go ahead. Yes, same thing. He lied there. And then he lied and said that he was never going to meet with Mr. Muhammad bin MBS, bin Salam, never going to meet with him. He did. And I didn't get upset about the fist bump because I thought he had the alternate explanation of COVID. So they're just going to bump fists rather than show a sign of greater intimacy that a handshake would convey. But a lot of people on his side got angry because they really do believe Biden for some weird reason when he lied that he was going to be tough on the crown prince because of the Khashoggi killing, and he wasn't. But the fact of the matter is, is this. Whatever this guy you think about him, MBS is trying to rid Saudi Arabia of Islamic fundamentalism and terrorists. Everybody agrees with that. And he's an autocratic dictator. And he's got, you know, he's got all these crazy ideas. He's building a $500 billion city in, on the Red Sea Desert. Naom, I think they call it. So he's trying to be kind of an Elon Musk character. So in some ways, he's a cut above the Saudi royal family. And more importantly, he's got all of this oil at a time of shortages. Under normal times, 20 years ago, a U.S. president would go there and he would make a realist calculation. He'd say, these are the drawbacks of this theocracy. These are the alternatives in the region. And because of their security concerns and because of our need for oil, they would cut the Cheney, Bush, that type of deal. And then Biden was part of that. And now Biden's come along with this moralistic idea. We don't have anything to do with him. And then he finds himself in this Orwellian position that he wants Americans to burn more dirty fuel because if you lower the price, they will drive more. This is exactly what he wanted, the situation we're in, this high gas price recessionary climate, because this is better on the environment. He told numerous times, as you know, Jack, we've talked about on the campaign trail, I'm going to eliminate all fossil fuels. And he did cancel Keystone and Anwar and fracking on new federal leasing and offshore. 
So he got what he wanted. And then he has the midterms because people are angry. They're paying six to $7 a gallon, depending on where you live. So he goes over there and he, and then this is a regime that he said he would never deal. Then he shows this sign of intimacy. And then he begs them to pump oil. And they've got this Cheshire cat grin on their face. Oh, yes. Oil. Yes, yes. Oh, by the way, do you have some of the dirty thing that you want us to get dirty and pump? And he's and then the head of Saudi intelligence tells people that he's clearly diminished from when he was in office. And he has brain freezes. He slurs words. He gets mixed up. And the left which would have said this was Lincoln-esque, it was, you know, six months ago. They want him gone. So they're now they're focusing on how dare you bump the fist of this person who ordered Khashoggi's murder. Even Adam Schiff is attacked. Yeah, Adam Schiff doesn't attack anybody unless it's politically useful for him. So he understands that Biden is on the way out, and he wants to be one of the heroes that did him in. And so but it's a disaster. And the Israeli thing was worse when he said that he used the word honor in association with the Holocaust. And he turned this way and that way. He did that. What was that? That imaginary shake where he shakes, the, you know, like Harvey the rabbit or something. He just shakes. There's nobody there. And then he turns around and he has that cough. And then he says he has a headache. And yeah, it's sad. It really is. He has no business there, but the main point is he is in a position that no president ever wanted to be in, and the whole thrust of the Trump presidency was to ensure that a U.S. president never, never went to the Middle East again and compromised principles, became a hypocrite, talked about human rights, and then begged the Saudi royal family to right. give us oil. And so we had solved that problem for the next decade. We had a decade or two of transitionary affordable fuels. Trump was all ready to green light nuclear plants and electric and hydrogen and all that stuff, but we were not gonna kill the middle class in that process. He came along and killed the middle class and destroyed our energy industry's trajectory, projected trajectory. Now he's over there and it's going to go downhill. Israel was a disaster. He's supposed to be creating a new coalition, the Abraham Accord coalition. And it's very interesting. The subtext is was Netanyahu, who's going to be prime minister in November. Right. He's already talking about, you know, I flew to Saudi Arabia and the Saudi royal family I have no problem with. They're modernists. They understand that I'm a reliable ally. So it was entirely in contrast to Biden. Right. That Israel is reliable, that the Saudis don't have to be good to be okay. And you deal with a hand that's dealt you all those uh, yeah. conventions of supply. And that's what we are. And I, well, I, the reason I sound kind of tired and, and slow is that I don't see anything out. I don't see any way out of this dilemma that we're in. We have a constitution. Right. And we have mechanisms to remove it. The, the left established a precedent. The 11th day Trump was in office, Rosa Brooks and foreign policy said, you know, you got to consider a coup or the 25th Amendment. If you can't impeach him quick. Then we have articles of impeachment were filed yes. within the first days of Congress. 60 and 60 voted for them. And then Rod Rosenstein and Andrew McCabe said, you know, the guy is crazy. And then they said that Trump 
had a funny gait. Remember that when he walked down or he, right. he, looked, he didn't look quite like Trump. And then somebody said he, he repeats his vocabulary. True. So Ronnie Jackson, the doctor, gave him the Montreal cognitive assessment, which he aced, which I don't think I could do with this long COVID. I flunked. And Biden wouldn't get one right. And then we had Bandy Lee, the psychiatrist, who went to Congress and said, you know, he should be straightjacketed and the frog march, I guess, carried out. So we had all of that. And then they went silent when we did really have a legitimate case of non-compos mentes that really requires a guy to be removed. And so trust me, Jack, if we had a legitimate vice president and we had not precluded that possibility by demanding a race and gender criteria before the selection was made, they wouldn't be in this situation. Right. Although I don't know who they would have picked, but they would have anybody would have been better except Stacey Abrams and Kamala Harris. Yeah, along those lines, not with the plan B, but on the cognitive stuff, I just saw a headline. I did not see Tucker Carlson's show, but something about information he has about Biden on the campaign trail in 2020, fortified by Jill Biden and others with kind of pep you up. I had... I can disclose this. I had a member of the administration call about before the, I think it was the first debate, and they were boasting how Trump was going to mop up the floor with him. And they just wanted a take. They were calling anybody, you know, just to see if their premonitions were correct. And I said, no. And he said, why? And I said, you know, I've had personal experience with people who have had cognitive problems in my family. And I had a grandmother that I took care of till she was 93 in our house. And I can tell you that if somebody is at the status that Biden was, you can put that person for a week and you can have him get up at noon and then, you know, go to bed at nine and adjust his day. And you can give him Adderall, like, I guess what we, that was her euphemisms for amphetamines. You can give him all sorts of Neutrocell. There are things that really are. I mean, fisetin and quercetin and other things that even though the medical establishment looks askance, they do over time have some ability to, for clarity for older people. But there are so medications they give and they're short term. And so when that debate came, I said, he's going to be rested. His time clock is going to be readjusted. He's going to be pumped full of medications. And for a brief two hours, he will be Joe Biden which is a total train wreck, but he'll be the Joe Biden of 2012 or or something like that. And I didn't get a very warm reception, but that's what's happened. That every once in a while, you can do that for a debate or a state of the nation address, but you can't do it all the time because the person, you know, it's an upper and the person that's cognitively challenged just can't sustain that. That's what they did. And we all know they do that. And when Tucker said that, I kind of yawned. I thought, yeah, that's what they do. But the presidency requires you to be that way every day. And so I know that at noon he goes home to Delaware and he has familiar surroundings and his pool and his luxury estate. And then he doesn't come back probably till Monday morning and they don't wake him. But still, those four days are as demanding as any job in the world or more demanding. And he's not up to it. And he's saying things now abroad. And he's doing things 
that are dangerous when he says he wants Putin removed, for example, right. or he says thing in Israel and he compares. And I know that being well, Irish, let me let me yeah, let me let me read that uh, just yeah, so we, you can comment on. Yeah, yeah, here's what he said. And this is uh, my background and the background of my family is Irish American. And we have a long history of not fundamentally, unlike the Palestinian people, long history with Great Britain and their attitude over the years for 400 years. My old colleague at National Review, Phil Klein, has commented on this, and he calls it rightly, I think, a disgraceful smear of Israel. Uh, I'm Irish. Yes, we've talked to you, know, half Italian, half Irish. My, my great grandfather was the grand. Marshal the St. Patrick's Day Parade, New York. Some even Irish royalty. Mm, wow, but we I don't. Know. This is crap. This is an insane. Yeah, I mean, thing. it's the first thing I heard that I thought, okay, the Irish, even the nonviolent Irish movement for autonomy, was gained at declaring they did attacks against the royal family inside England, but no one in the Irish liberation movement said that Great Britain was an illegitimate <laughs> occupational power and they wanted to remove it off the face of the earth. And so that's what the Palestinians want to do. They just don't want to get back all of the West Bank or parts of Israel. They want to destroy the entire notion of right. Great Britain. And the Jews have been in that area longer than the modern day Norman, Anglo-Saxon, whatever the mixture of what we call the British have been in Britain. Right. And so that was just absolutely crazy. And well, Israel is not only a fundamental ally, it's an essential ally. It might be even in some ways our best ally. And to denigrate it is just remarkable. And then Victor, you- $100 million he's restoring to the Palestinians. He says to hospitals, it won't stay in hospitals. Yeah, it'll right. It'll, it'll, it'll go everywhere. It'll go the same place PPP you know, payments no, went yeah, to the, the pockets be, of uh, yeah, hoodlums. Shovel-ready jobs. There'll be, there'll be missiles in the basements of all those uh, hospitals. Well, you mentioned before Israel and Saudi Arabia, and one of the things that unites them is their hatred of Iran. And Joe Lieberman, the former Senator was talking the other day, attacking Biden for his quote unquote religious fervor, almost religious fervor about this deal. So, wooing the Saudis, trying to nuclearize Iran, denigrating Israel, all it's, it's, what the hell? I don't know. No. I don't well, know. I mean, and there's a common denominator, Chaos. there's a common denominator to all of it. To go over to Israel and basically insult them, and that is coming off a need to restore relations with Israel because Biden has attacked them in the past. And then to go beg the Saudis for oil that we won't pump. And then to talk as if you can deal with this Iranian theocracy, which, by the way, has enriched the vast majority of its uranium that it now has enough for one bomb at least, while Joe Biden was president. And you can really see the frustration of the left and the never Trump, right? Max Boot, who wrote all of these Washington Post and earlier articles, damning the, the Iran deal, just damning it during the Obama regnum. And then when Trump, of course, got out, he got mad at Trump because it was Trump and to, that he got out of the deal. Now he's writing that it's Trump's fault 
that Iran will get the bomb, but poor Biden will be blamed because it was during his tenure that he enriched it, which is just insane. And meanwhile, Bibi is sort of like a bumblebee buzzing around the entire Middle East, landing in these Arab countries and saying, this is why you've had a real politique detente with me, because you know me. And I'm not Joe Biden, and I'm reliable. And when I'm going to be prime minister in November, I'm going to ensure they will not get a bomb that threatens you and us. And that's the message he's doing. And whether we like it or not, at some critical point, someone is going to take that facility out. And it's not going to be us. It's going to be Israel. And the Arabs know that. And they're going to use Israel to do that. And, and that's a good word, use. And then we're going to attack Israel and condemn it. And then we're going to say privately, gosh, I'm so glad they did that. We've done that every time. We've done that when they took out the Assad reactor. We did that earlier during the Iran-Iraq war when they took out Saddam's reactor. Even the right, you know, people in the Republican Party, how dare they do that? They're a rogue nation. Then you know, you, you let it die down, and Cheney puts a picture on his wall of the destroyed reactor. Right. And that, that's how we operate. But Israel's going to take the heat because no one else is going to do it, or the people who might do it don't have the capability. And that's just a fact. And Biden, if he really wanted to prevent that, then he would put on tough sanctions on Iran. But he will not put on tough sanctions on Iran of the kind that would cripple them because he wants their oil on the international market. He wants as much oil as he can before the midterm election. So it's very strange, Jack. If you look at that strategic petroleum reserve, it's going down fast. It only has about 800 million barrels. He's got up over a million a day. And he's pumping that. And he's begging the Saudis. And I don't think they're going to add any, but they might. And then he doesn't seem too upset that Russia is sending all of this oil to China and pumping it at an increased rate to India because they're part of the fungible market. Right. And so he's trying to think in his mind, how can I, I shouldn't say he doesn't have a mind. So Jill Biden and Ron Klain and the Obamas and their, you know, Susan Rice type hangers on are saying to themselves, how do we get more oil in the world market and crash the price before the midterm, but not have to participate in that process? ourselves, even though we're the largest, second largest consumer of oil in the world. we got to figure that out. And that's where we came up with this lunacy that apparently has no rationale, but it does have a logic to it. And that is, get the price of gasoline down by 50 cents before the midterms. Do not pump any more oil. If you pump it out of the reserve, it does not count as pumping fresh oil. Beg the Saudis, the Iranians, the Venezuelans, the Russians to pump more oil. And that's what we're doing. Right. How the American people tolerate this, I don't know. But it explains maybe why some polls, he's right at 30%. This is insane, is what I'm trying to get at. I can't even think of words that you have this valuable resource and you have it in abundance and you have the capability to extract it much more environmentally soundly than you would if the Saudis did the commiserate increases, and yet you're begging them to do it, and yet you want that commodity from them, and you're begging them, begging them, because right. you have no problem using it. You just don't want to produce 
Yeah, and it's not, it's not like any other commodity either. I mean, it is kind of the pinnacle of commodities, if only because where energy is produced and energy is consumed, the more energy there is, the less poverty there is. I don't, uh, yeah, exactly. It's like you have a Mercedes in your car, in your garage, and you have a Lexus. And then you say, I don't believe in driving, but I got to drive. So you go over to your neighbor who, you know, has a Ford and you say, can you please give me that Ford? I need to drive. I need it. It doesn't make any sense. It's almost as lunatic as Gavin Newsom, you know, going around the country and telling everybody <laughs> that Florida is a failure and the freedom, liberty, successful alternative is California when everybody's fleeing to Florida. I think I used a column where I said, it's like you have a service station that had a, a once golden trademark and it was very popular, but it's run down. It's overpriced. The thing yeah. doesn't work. Your customers have fled across the street to this gleaming new, super efficient service station that's cheaper with a better quality of gas. And then you get out in the roof and scream and yell and say, this is horrible. This guy is terrible. You don't want to go there. You know, it doesn't make any sense. This is his, uh, the title of that column is uh, Gavin Newsom's Weird Idea of Freedom, which folks can find it on your website. And also it's published by American Greatness. So um, yeah, that's another, he's another enigma. But Victor, let's, you know, as much as we just talked about Joe Biden smearing the people, in this case, the Israelis, it seems to be all in the family. You know, Joe has a long history of that with blacks and with Indians, uh, you know, and oh, the 7-11 owners, etc. But wow, Jill Biden seems to, uh, you know, have picked up the bug. And, and let's talk about Jill Biden's taco stand right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. We're recording on the 16th of July. It's a Saturday. I'd like to encourage all listeners to visit victorhanson.com. That's Victor's website where everything he writes it can be found uh, links to these podcasts, other appearances. It's a great catch all of all things. Victor, many pieces that he does write for that website exclusively are called Ultra. You can read them if you have a subscription. And I want to encourage our listeners to do that. It's just 
$5 for an initial introductory. Take it. Stick your toe in the water. See how warm and cool or whatever the water is. It's both. It's warm and cool. You'll enjoy it. And then a subscription for the full year is $50. The only way you can read those pieces, by the way, is by subscribing. So that's victorhanson.com. Victor Jill Biden was out on the hustings of a sort, and she really upset Hispanics, Latinos, with her comparison of Latinos to tacos. Everybody kind of laughed a little bit, but even the, even the Hispanic Journalism Association went on the attack against her. I found that a little, <laughs> a little uh, heartening, actually. Any thoughts, Victor? Well, you remember she was, she said, she said, she said, because we're doing a podcast, we have to mention this. She said, she say podway. She say podway. Podway, quadway. So I guess she was trying to say, yes, the podcast works. But there's certain rules of nomenclature when you get into the thorny shrubbery of identity politics. You never use the word watermelon under any context whatsoever with African-Americans. You never use the word taco under any context with Hispanics, Mexican-Americans in particular. It's just a, I don't need to get in why, but that's just a rule that every politician knows. And so when she calls people, <laughs> you're as beautiful as the tacos, the morning tacos, then she's just doubling down on that stereotype and dr jill we're starting to learn jack that the more that she's out in public the less it's valuable for the democratic party she is a walking gaff machine she's just about like he is she's an airhead she's pretentious she's clings to that title like it's a life raft which is which is one of the least deserved doctorates in America, that what, what she received. The EDD, I spent much of my life in the California system dealing with EDDs. It's a degree where you don't happen to have any foreign language facility or even in some cases write a thesis. But it's the people who have it tend to identify themselves as doctor more than anybody that has a PhD, even an MD. <laughs> so my point is that she is a liability and she's going to be more of a liability because in direct proportion to his descendants, she's going to ascend, which is why she wanted him to run in the first place. Her idea the whole time during the 2020 campaign, but it even started earlier when he was grooming himself after Hillary failed. She went toward the country in 17, 18, 19, 20. They were prepping him, and her whole point was no matter how bad this guy is, I'm at his side. I can pop him a pill, but I can speak. And at some point, I'm going to be Edith Wilson. I'm going to be a prominent voice, if not the voice in the administration. I might even be president of the United States de facto. So her ego was enormous. She's in a position that doesn't bother her. She wanted to be in this position. And any wife who loved her husband and had some sense of they were a partnership would have said to him, you know what, we've had a good run and I'm not going to allow you to go out there because people are going to tear you apart and you had a career in the Senate and you're going to be remembered as a president who could not fulfill his duties. And I can help you, but I couldn't help you enough 
to overcome that fact. And we can have three to five, eight good years in retirement. Let's just do it. But that's not who she is. And the result is that was a cruel joke that was played on the American people. And now we've got a president who's touring the United States, touring the world. And anything he says, anything that comes out of his mouth, I used to say, if it's not teleprompted, even if it's teleprompted, I repeat, he'll, he will speak the, and enunciate and, and talk out loud the prompts that are printed on the teleprompter screen. Right. And anything that goes off topic is a disaster. And you know what? When people lose their cognitive breaks or their cognitive veneer, then you see the raw essence. And Joe Biden raised Hunter Biden. And the inside of Joe Biden is not pretty. It's mm-hmm. not. He has a history of lying, of plagiarism, of racism, of meanness, of sexual assault, of sexual harassment. And when that veneer comes off, we're going to see more and more of it. And I don't know what they're going to do. He is one, put it this way, Jack, he is one incident away from losing his office. If he should decline geometrically rather than arithmetically, which he's doing at the same rate, next time there's a young girl overseas, a member of a, of a dignitary's family, he could grab right. his shoulders blow in her hair, what would you do? What would the American people do? They'd say that was enough. Yeah. This is this is getting really strange. Or if he, you know, he can pass out. I don't know. I don't think he's there's no way in the world he's going to be able to finish this term. I think people need to talk about that seriously. Yeah. I guess you you could pull it off in nineteen nineteen when you're Mrs. Woodrow Wilson, not living in the communications age we do now. But for Jill Biden to aspire essentially to be Mrs. Woodrow Wilson is that's kind of twisted, Victor. But uh, so she did. Speaking of Doctor Jill Biden, let's switch to um, something domestic and Florida. And the state of Florida has passed a bill, and Governor DeSantis has signed it that reforms tenure, which is a thing you have. I may be wrong. I'm no, I do. I, I've reforming or actually re- removing tenure, but but you, this this legislation would create a five year review of tenure. Every five years, you'd have to go for a review, and I think it's not unimportant. It says before the board of trustees. My feeling about board of trustees of colleges is they're mostly a bunch of uh, for private colleges anyway, a bunch of they're looking for that on the prestige of being a trustee of a, of a university and actually fighting the fights that are needed at universities. I don't think they emanate from the boards of trustees. Nevertheless, it's better to have them adjudicate such a thing rather than an administrator. And hey, if you don't pass the test, you can be fired. So this is kind of heartening. What are your thoughts about it, Victor? Well, I mean, he's in a position of power, isn't he? Because we're in a climate now where there's over 1 million students fewer that are going to enroll in the fall nationwide. And we've talked about that. That translates into about 10,000 faculty positions that are unneeded. We're in a period where we have spent five or $6 billion in investing scarce university dollars on diversity, equity, and inclusion commissars. So that is going to hurt the budgets of these schools. And we're in a period where almost every day on TikTok or YouTube, or something, there is a professor, often in a selfie type of landscape, where they're bragging about some crazy thing. The latest one was the gender studies professor that tried to attack Josh Hawley. 
she was from UC Berkeley to try to tell her there are not two genders, there's three. And then she was abrasive and rude. And so anytime you put a professor on these social issues in front of Congress or in the media, they don't do well. And they just reaffirm this view that they're pampered. So DeSantis comes along and in his strength is that he's young. He's 42 or 43, and unlike Biden or Trump. And he has adopted the MAGA agenda almost to the letter. And now he's trying to prove to people that he has the fire in the belly, Trump combativeness, but without the gratuitous tweets or personal slurs or this person's the worst person in the world. And this is part of that effort because I do think he's going to run in the primary. And so he's saying, you know what? I can do this. I think the governor, usually in a state in Florida, is probably no different. It's about 80% of the Board of Regents or Board of Governors, whatever term they use, are appointed by the governor. I don't know how many he's been, usually they have limited tenures, but he probably has the votes. And what he's saying is that he's really putting the onus on the faculty. He's saying, okay, tenure was established to permit academic freedom and diversity of thought, but about 95% of professors vote hard left democratic. And it seems like all the professors who are being fired for no cause at all, they're all right wing. Are they conservative? Ilya Shapiro, Joshua Kotz at Princeton. There's a lot of them and they have tenure, but it doesn't apply to conservatives. So if it's not going to apply to conservatives, why have it? And then he's saying to them, can you please tell me another professional group that has tenure, lifetime guaranteed security? I can't. Maybe civil service people are difficult to fire, but not impossible almost. And so what he's saying is that tenure didn't do what it was supposed to. It didn't protect academic freedom. The only thing he should be careful is that when he does abolish tenure, the first people who will have be actionable, and they won't be fired for their political views, although that will be the real cause, they will be ostensibly fall because of budget cuts. And I saw that at Cal State in 1993 when people said, there's no more money. We have to lay off tenure faculty. And they went after people who were either controversial or conservative. And that'll happen. Yeah. But I think as a bridge to no tenure, he can have something like five-year contracts that you have in the private sector. In other words, if you're a professor of classics, you say you meet with a faculty board and the dean, and he says, okay, we're going to renew you for five years. In this five-year period, you are going to teach the following number of classes. This is the amount of time you're going to have off. You're going to take one sabbatical, perhaps. We expect two refereed scholarly articles and maybe on your next five-year, a book. And we would like your teaching evaluations, whether peer or student, to reflect department norms. I was right. chairman of hundreds of those committees, unfortunately. Right. And that would be easy to do. And I can see, Victor, the case for tenure in a philosophical way. The point of it being educated is to be educated by someone who can impart this great knowledge. I think the quality of the actual professors matters. And to protect great professors or to make sure they hang in there is not unimportant to an institution. Of course, it's been terribly abused. The problem, uh, the problem is that there's two types of professors. There's the minority that 
really like ideas and they like to inculcate knowledge and pass on what they've learned and they like to do original research and they like to enrich their environment and they're not very common and when they are at a university they incite jealousy envy otherworldly i've seen them before and they're kind of giants on campus sometimes it goes to their head they get a little hubristic but they are the types of people who need to be protected because they don't fit well they come late to the faculty meetings or they skip them or you know they say things that are crazy sometimes but they're brilliant people and they need to be protected okay you can do that with a five-year contract but unfortunately the majority of people are either so socially inept and they've been in graduate school in this little corner of expertise they don't know how to operate in the real world or they feel that all those years undergraduate and graduate you know eight nine ten years and they're the experts on weaving and the gender weaving in medieval England and they come out in the real world and they've got this title and they've got this professorship and then nobody cares and so they're always insecure they're, they feel that they're not given enough money they're not given enough attention they're not given enough prestige they're not given enough respect they've never been eager to associate with students they're not interested in teaching and that's a lot of them and then so tenure protects them Right. And they tend to find ways to go after the other people that have tenure. Right. And so Wait. and they, they're a nasty bunch. I mean, if you le- read about the Joshua Katz case at Princeton. Right. It was right out of John in the New Testament. He without sin. I mean, they had found that he had had a consensual, consensual relationship with a student who was over the age of consent, obviously in her 20s. And they decided long ago to punish him for that he was kind of outspoken then and they did they didn't have him teaching for you and then later when he spoke out about a black what he called terrorist group which it was in a way they went back and violated due process and went back over that and reopened that case and tried to get people to say things and the whole subtext was does anybody really believe if you lined up every professor in the School of Humanities or Arts and Sciences in Princeton, and you put them under a lie detector test, and you said to them, have you ever had consensual sexual relations with a student? Yes or no. If it's yes, you're going to be fired. They don't want to do that. And so that's how the university works. They find ways to go after people in the way that the commissariat and the Soviet system did. All in all, Jack, I think it's better DeSantis is right, get rid of it, and then offer some kind of multi-year contract that has guarantees of performance. Okay, thanks, Victor, for that. One more question about tenure, though, if you don't mind, and then we've got to get on to one more subject before we end today's program. As a rule, somebody receives tenure, is now tenured. I'm going to make an assumption. Their work productivity changes. Does it change like almost immediately? Does it take a few years before the coasting starts. I made a lot of assumptions there. I'm not knocking everyone who's got tenure, but does tenure affect the work productivity of the person (laughs) receiving tenure? And how quickly does that happen? Well, without mentioning any names, I can tell you that as somebody who chaired the retention tenure promotion, or actually retention to RTP process, for a number of years at the school level and the department level. It works like this. When an assistant professor is hired, they have six years 
two, three-year contracts, and then they're home free. So the young person that is hired is obsequious. So they try to meet all the senior people. They try to figure out who's on the tenure committee. They're very kind. They're nice. They come at eight. They leave at five. They come in five days a week. They put little posters on their bulletin board about what they're doing. They're very careful not to publish too much and cite the envy of the drones that are tenured. But they're very productive. And they're usually in their you know late 20s or 30s, so it's easy to be. And then tenure happens. And I mentioned this minority of group that love learning, and they keep doing it no matter what. Tenure is just irrelevant to them. They'll write books or they'll they'll write articles no matter what, or they will engage students. But these most people won't. So then after they get tenure, then they they start thinking in different ways. Now, what are those different ways? It's things like the following. Well, where am I going to teach? I want this particular classroom. And I want this particular time. And I want all my classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or I want them all on Tuesday, Thursday. Or, you know, I'm doing a lot of underappreciated counseling, and I want uh, course relief for that. I want course credit time off. Or I don't think it's very fair that I have to be on this committee. I've already been on committees. Or, and this is my favorite, because I was the head of the sabbatical committee for a couple of terms. Yes, I need a sabbatical, and I have a very, very important project. And could we see some preliminary publication? Well, uh, I I don't want to preview my conclusions, but it's in my office. It's bound. Can you please bring it in? And the point is that they don't do anything. And usually if you're there for 35 years, you get a sabbatical every seven. So you get four either full years at half pay or four semesters at full right. pay. Nice. And usually it's there's no autopsy or post-tenure review. There was supposed to be a post-tenure review, but it's a joke. So when I was the head of the tenure committee and also I was head of the sabbatical committee, I'd always say, well, can I please, this is your third sabbatical request. I want to see what happened the last 14 years. Well, how dare you do that? These are very important findings, and I'm going to culminate them in this one. They act very differently when they get tenure. And, you know, you can really see that, Jack. There was a very brief moment when during the financial shakedown and before the California Faculty Association that represents the largest university in the world at the CSU system had a complete monopoly that is on faculty participation. It used to be, if you were a faculty member, you paid your thousand bucks a year and you were a member of the faculty governance of the whole university chain. And then they set your salary and they negotiated for you. It was a closed union shop, but there were only about 25% joined the union. And they said, well, everybody's freeloading. They get union contract, but they don't. So they made it mandatory that everybody, whether you were a union member or not, had to pay the dues. And then they got out of control. But my point is this, before that happened, there the legislature and the governor decided that they were going to have merit pay. Can you believe that? This, at a public university, merit pay meant that there would not be Joe Blow gets tenure, he's in year seven, year eight, and you can look at a trajectory on a graph and you can tell exactly when he, what he'll be making in his 35th year, okay? 
So they changed the whole pay scale. They said, if you, the dean determines that you've written a lot of books or articles or you're a superb teacher, he's going to up you. And if you haven't, he's going to freeze you. And when that happened, I could not believe it. It literally, the first day of the term that started under that new system, I walked down this hallway and all of a sudden, every bulletin board outside a faculty member's office did not have no blood for oil rally going on, LBGQ rights center, none. It was all gone. It was uh, a picture of this person at a conference or an article that he had written was on there. And then when you would go into the meeting, it was, hey, everybody, did I tell you I've got a new piece coming out in the clinical journal of mathematical expository thought, or I've got a new one in the literature review. And it was all about this. And everybody was, you know, competing. And it was all of a sudden, the Democratic legislature caved and the union took over and it had all this flesh cast with all these members dues that were not members, but they had to give. And suddenly they canceled it. And then they had kind of an equity thing where anybody who'd crawled ahead like a little tortoise too much. They grabbed him and they held him still for a few years while the other little tortoise crawled up equal. And then it was all over. And then all of a sudden, there was all the political sloganeering and posters on all the faculty bulletin boards. You go into the hallway at eight o'clock in the morning, no one was there. No doors were open. Come on in. Office hour. I remember one guy said, official office hours, and then he had them listed. And then he said, but for anybody who wants to come in and chat, just walk on in. So that ended very quickly. And so that's how they operate is what I'm trying to tell you. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Victor. We've got one more subject to talk about, and that's fact-checking. And we'll get to that right after these important messages. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show recording on Saturday, July 16th. I'm Jack Fowler. I'd like to encourage our listeners to check out not only victorhanson.com, but what I do, I write Sybil Thoughts. That's a weekly email newsletter with a dozen or more recommended readings. It is free. There is no risk. Your name's not put on a list. And I write that for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. So if you'd like to subscribe, please do so. Go to civilthoughts.com, sign up there. If you're interested in the Center for Civil Society, and we are trying to strengthen civil society, check that out at centerforcivilsociety.com. So Victor, last week when we recorded, 
some podcasts, we talked about the incident, Joe Biden, you brought up earlier, reading the teleprompter, repeat the line, et cetera, and how the White House spokeswoman, deputy spokeswoman, Emily Simons, put out a statement, it was on Twitter. No, no, he didn't say, he said, he said let me repeat that line. No, he said, repeat the line, reading the teleprompter. So what, Jack? So what? Well, this is from The Federalist. Uh, and it, here's, here, let me just read this quickly. So they show the tweet by Emily Simons, twisting what Biden said, didn't say. Despite the clear video evidence that Biden never said, let me, Simons claimed Biden wanted to emphasize that American women should let their voices be heard in order to reclaim our rights. This was all about abortion. And that the president often uses similar phrases about repetition for emphasis. Now, factcheck.org took her word for it and said, quote, this is just another example of Biden being falsely accused of having issues while using a teleprompter, end quote. The fact check, quote unquote fact check, ends with an editor's note that clearly states the article was designed to help big tech censor and deplatform Critics of the Democrat regime, <laughs> Fact Check is one of the several organizations working with Facebook to debunk misinformation shared on social media, et cetera, et cetera. Victor, it's a story worth reading. It's at The Federalist, but this is kind of the core of the culture war, the chaos we have when the truth is back to Orwell. You know, war is peace. If you cannot say that two plus two is four, how can we? How can we have a civil society? Well, I mean, the subtext is Miss Simons, as I remember, was Adam Schiff's director of PR. She was her public relations. And then when they wanted a black gay woman to be the voice of Joe Biden, they needed a Jin Psaki-like character who knew all of the nukes and crannies and how to lie more effectively. So they brought in Adam Schiff. And she, remember Adam Schiff, he was the one that engineered the first impeachment and set up the whole strange Venman whistleblower shift, lied about it. He had the minority report on the Russia collusion hoax, lied about it. He read in material into the transcript that was not true, kind of ad-libbed what happened on the phone call, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, she was his PR. I think she came in in the spring and so this was supposed to bring in a pro, and she is a pro, that is a pro Orwellian. Got to remember, Jack, all of these leftists feel that their exalted ends justify any means. So if you're Mr. Kleinsmith for the FBI law, and you just got to get a scalp, and you got to go after Carter Page, and you have a moral right to alter a document for a FISA court, even though that's a felony. If you're Ms. Simons and you know what Joe Biden said, you have a right to say that he did not say that and alter a transcript and make sure that that's not in it the way that Joe Biden actually said it. And if you look at all those transcripts of what he says, they're all cleaned up. They do not reflect what people hear. And that's just the way the left operates. And that is Orwellian. But again, the thinking behind it is that we are so morally superior and we're so intellectually towering that no one no one has a right to question our methods because our means and methodologies are absolutely necessary for us to craft the right, correct, perfect policy for you unthinking, stupid people in the middle class that doesn't know what's good for you. That's how they think. 
Yeah. Well, Victor, thanks for that and for all the uh, wisdom you've shared today. I want to thank our listeners who keep growing. The numbers just keep growing and growing. Thank you for Thank everybody for listening. And I'm yeah. doing this from Stanford today, so I don't know if my uh, microphone is of the same quality or my brain is, because every time I seem to get to the campus here, I lose some brain cells. <laughs> <laughs> Let me read one comment, Victor, of the folks that visit Apple Podcasts, where you can rate the show one to five stars. Thanks to the many. The overwhelming number who rated five stars greatly appreciate it. We read the comments, and here's one from 1 Peter 13. Sounds kind of biblical. Everyone needs VDH. VDH has become my favorite commentator. There's no hysteria or showmanship here like on most political podcasts. I've learned more listening to VDH than all the others combined. We all need more historical perspective so we understand that there is truly nothing new under the sun. Thank you, First Peter 13. Hey, Victor, I'm just curious. When did, were you like 10 when people started calling you VDH or is, is that more of a No, it was, it, was, it was a very strange thing. I came home from graduate school and I showed my mom that I, you know, I never used my middle name and I showed my mom my thesis and she said, well, it says Victor Hansen. I said, yeah, mom. She goes, well, I'm tired of the Hanson, the Scandinavians. <laughs> we live in this house and this yeah. was the Davis. So I want you to, to use your middle name. Oh, said, wow. It's kind of, it's kind of uh, formalistic. She goes, no, no. So I just did it and thought it would disappear. And then I started writing books and I didn't want, I turned in my next book, actually next two with Victor Hansen. And they said, no, no, you're going to get confused. So if you're going to use, be an author, stay with the same name. And then it was kind of weird because I'd say 50% of the people always say Victor David Hansen. Yeah, I did what, that to you once. Yeah. And when I that check was, in, when I check really into embarrassing. a hotel, yeah. I just have a thing now when I check into a hotel, I know that it won't be under Hansen because they think it's Davis Hansen, oh, yeah. like I'm British or something. So yeah. it'll be under D. So it's a hassle. And it sounds pretentious, people tell me, but I did it for my mother. And I live in the Davis house, so I have no problem with it. But I have a brother who has this Alfred Davis Hansen. He's never used the middle name. I never did until I was 26. Well, and then people just said, keep it. And so mom, I did. Mom rules as well. She should God rest yeah. her soul. Well, thanks, Victor. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of The Victor Davis Hansen Show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks.